this condition. The condition? That's my memory. Amnesia. No, 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 no. It's different from that. What? Since my injury, I can't make new memories. Everything fades. If we talk for too long, I'll forget how we started. Next time I see you, I'm not going to remember this conversation. From the director of Batman Begins. A real magician invents something new. What happens? It was the greatest magic trick I've ever seen. When a rivalry becomes a battle, it has no trick. It's real. Every twist and every turn decides who lives or who dies. And nothing can prepare you for what you can't see coming. He can do what magicians pretend to do. The Prestige, ready PG-13, starts October 20th. folks welcome back to whose film is it anyway with uh, yeah your host josh page and my co-host steve molina <clears throat> we are here taking a deep dive into the works of the great christopher nolan and uh i don't know if this is quite the halfway point but here we are we've arrived the prestige steve hello hello everyone welcome back to another episode this one pretty good pretty good not too much tuna no this movie um kind of like with uh insomnia i feel like this one kind of gets buried within nolan's his Um, filmography and it just kind of gets lost in the shuffle but this is a brilliant movie i i'm i find i like his hidden gems more than i like his mainstream stuff actually yeah, I find that um, I've always said ever since I saw this that this was one of his most underrated movies. Um, but this time, now that we've taken like an evaluation into this guy, into this man's work, this guy, um, this guy, this, <laughs> it's just this one just kind of hit different. I mean, it was just I knew I had always loved it, but it was really I think you kind of nailed it in saying the fact that it's a hidden gem makes it more special because like people talk about it like the fans talk about it but at the same time like when people uh mention nolan i just feel like this is not one of the top mentions and i just feel like and i feel like it should be i think it's because it's a smaller movie that came out before the dark knight plus this was a smaller movie in general this movie had a uh, budget of 40 million dollars compared to batman begins which had 150 million dollar budget this was only a only a 40 million dollar budget That's interesting, considering it's a period piece, how everything between the set design and the costumes alone were yeah. um, very authentic. Well, um, did you want to talk about your first time with the movie or no? I want... <laughs> first time your with first the Your first time with the movie. <laughs> Let me tell you about my first time with this movie. Whew. So Ooh. I have a I have a very, very vivid memory of someone describing this movie to me. Uh, when I was in high school, or um, and someone someone had said it was like end of high school, and someone's like, I just saw a movie with the craziest twist ending. I don't know if it's the the best movie I've ever seen or the worst movie I've ever seen. I'm like, that's really no way to sell a movie. <laughs> and they were like, you just you gotta see it, you gotta see it. And um, I remember going. I think I had gone to the theater with my oldest friend to go see this movie, and it was kind of one of those things where. 
it kind of ends and like you almost have to question everything. Now this is going off the first time I saw it. And I just remember being very, being very confused, not necessarily about the plot, but just about like trying to piece together in my head, everything all at once at the end. And I remember just feeling that, and we can get very into it about how meta this movie is, but it's very <laughs> like watching this movie was almost like, it was like a trick. So performed so well that like, I couldn't applaud. I couldn't, I couldn't, be overwhelmed i was kind of just taken aback well which to is your very... point uh sorry to no no, no, in, no but this, this could cut into point. uh some of the production stuff nolan said that uh when writing this movie with his brother he wanted to make it about a commentary about filmmaking itself and he wanted the movie to follow the guidelines of a magic trick so it all just meshes together in the way I... that you were describing I mean, that's the meta way. And that's the thing is it's, it's that I can remember not so much the watching the movie itself, but the feeling I had when it was over. Cause it was kind of just, I was, I was, just, I just remember being taken aback. And the, the note, the last note I made when watching it this time, as I said, what I didn't know that he had said that I, I wrote this film was perhaps a metaphor on Nolan's entire approach to filmmaking because that's that's how it felt. I mean, that's watching it now, that's how it felt. Like, I mean, back then I just remember being blown away with the same equivalent feeling of if someone were to watch a great magic show, whatever, in the late 1800s or in general. But that's that idea of being wowed and wondering how they did it. As far as years going by, I remember people confusing, <laughs> confusing this movie with The Illusionist, with <laughs> Edward Norton. I just want to make a note because both films came out in 2006. Not only did they both come out in 2006, they came out within a month of one another. Oh, that's bad. I didn't realize they were that close. <laughs> but not, and, and beyond that, they were both about, what is it, 18th, 18th century uh, magicians. It's kind of the same situation when uh, A Bug's Life and Ants and came ants. out. <laughs> and everyone forgets Ants came out first. There's always, and when two movies that, that similar come out that close, you're always bound to just remember. I feel like society's bound to remember one more than the other. When Which I is why Bug's Life is still number one. I mean, Seven Samurai with bugs. <laughs> Absolutely. But, but they did a Kurosawa's three and a half hour movie in what, like 90 minutes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they really knew how to trim the fat on that one. So early Pixar did the first Toy Story is what only like it's an hour and twenty two like, minutes. Yeah, it's short and it's it breezes. That's kind of what works about it for me, you know. But exactly, we'll get there, we'll, we'll get there when we get there. What you're saying is uh, that the prestige is a bug's life and ants is a well, uh, the illusionist is ants. <laughs> correct. Okay. Ab okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just without the Woody Allen, which probably yeah. worked in its legacy Probably favor. worked in its favor. <laughs> if Woody Allen showed up in an 18th century magician movie, I'd be a little alarmed. This is a quote from Arthur C. Clarke, who is a uh, famed uh, fiction writer. He worked with Stanley Kubrick on 2001 A Space Odyssey. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable for magic. That just like came to mind when watching this movie. Because... You're literally watching magicians see a wizard. And they even acknowledge that Tesla is a wizard. The movie is just deeper than I think anything that Nolan has ever made before or since. There's just so many um, parables to the past, to the present and the future. You're just, it's 
just so well crafted into this like meta commentary exactly like you said uh well i mean it exists in the exact time period that it should because it's on the brink of technology you're talking about tesla being a wizard and it's this idea that technology hasn't advanced to the degree it has so even the idea of someone inventing electricity think about people who've lived for since the dawn of time without electricity and then like having it and being explained oh this is a thing now or this is something that people can do and so the fact that this movie exists on the brink of an age where technology has not advanced it's literally it's literally just it's almost like a metaphor it's almost like a legend it's almost like an urban myth it's a commentary on just so many things not just uh, yeah 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 yeah. you know it's about filmmaking it's about rivalries and what they can draw obsession 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 is the key thing of this movie you know it's um i don't know man it's just there's so this movie reminded me very much of um insomnia already you know you have two men who are just they're both very savvy they're all different characters don't get me wrong but supposed to be rivals i guess is the way i'm trying to say they're all just like destined to collide with one another these are early indications well this is we're almost in the middle of his career this is the (laughs) what we've seen so far but this is this is an early indication of what we've seen like the dark knight between batman and the joker it's this Mm -hmm. idea of two heads coming to fruition there's one clear there's one clear hero and one clear villain not in this one well you want to believe that the clear the clear protagonist, the clear hero you want to believe is, is Hugh Jackman's character, I believe. That's how they set it up. Yeah. And that Christian Bale's character is the antagonist, we'll say. It's not even a hero and villain. It's just really that's how they set it up. But as you get to explore both men, it's a turning of the tables. It's exactly what Insomnia did, which is why it's a, you, know, you were saying it's a good comparison. So production. Um, again, the production designer is Nathan Crowley. So for the set... Uh, oh, wow. That's, um, is this every time now while yeah. uh, Crowley's been on? Nice. Well, every time since uh, Insomnia. But, oh, he, oh, okay. But uh, what's it called? When they were two in the sets. Do you know that they shot this in L.A.? No. Well, they shot it in L.A. <laughs> so there you go. I mean, not just in L.A. because uh, That's actually pretty impressive, but go on. They repurposed the Universal lot for the uh, streets of London, which they said that they wanted to make like a maze that the camera can follow because you're constantly making turns, kind of like The Shining. Mm -hmm. They didn't say The Shining thing. That's just my observation. In downtown LA, they commandeered four theaters to make uh, them look beaten up for Hugh Jackman to put on fake and uh, Christian Bale to put on fake shows. I will say that's really interesting because the production design alone um, in creating sets and everything is, is very impressive for the Yeah, movie. it was uh, at the Los Angeles Theater, the Palace Theater, the Los Angeles Belasco, and the Tower Theater. For uh, Tesla's machine, like his office machine area, they went to an observatory. So that's like some of the... St- metal around him is literally a telescope that's pretty cool which is yeah that's crazy that's good that's good trivia um yeah once again blade runner came into effect here okay 
Nolan wanted to build up out a dirty, disgusting world, just like in Blade Runner. But he also took a note about the advertising in Blade Runner, a big part of what makes the world the world. It's just a constant advertisement. So Nolan said, during this time, you would have more advertising than now, and it would be more in your face. So there are posters literally on everything. Oh, it, for uh, like the magicians and for... Not just magicians, well, I guess but for there's like posters going on the and shit and... just everywhere. You know, I never, I never noticed that. Like, I knew the production design was good because it felt natural. It felt like you were literally walking around the streets during this time. But well, that's just an aspect. That's just a small aspect of it that is obviously a lot more in-depth than people realize. Yeah, because they went for what they called a Victorian modernism. Talk about costuming. Again, <laughs> surprise, surprise, Nolan wanted muted, earthy tones. <laughs> Shocking as that may be. Shocking, earthy tones but he wanted to keep the clothing around the face dark so that their faces would pop. Okay, uh, in hindsight, that works. But the only one who was kept in color was Scarlett Johansson and uh, Hugh Jackman's wife. I'm forgetting the character name right now. No, but Scarlett Johansson was given the more bright colors because I guess sexism. I don't... Well, she's the showgirl. She is the showgirl. She has to be on stage. And she's Scarlett Johansson. That's true. Although I mean, her character was... Doesn't matter about her character. character was sexist, Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. What are you saying? What do you mean? It's the ca- oh, the way they made the character. They, they... The way that they made the character is very. Um, that was my least favorite part of the movie. She was just a constant. Like she's falling in love with both of them. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, that's crazy. Come on. Nolan also, and we can do this maybe when it starts. And they're literally obvious. using her as a prop. You know, it's like uh, that's part of the plot. But it's also, but you're. I agree. I completely agree with you. But. I've heard an off, uh, a, a criticism that Nolan doesn't exactly write women in general the best way. Like That's he why has, he didn't put any of them in Dunkirk. Right. He has. <laughs> oh, come on. You know, Solved that uh, problem real good. Uh, Harry, you know, Harry Styles was pretty enough. You know, you didn't need no women, you know. <laughs> no, I mean, this, uh, he writes great female characters from time to time. But overall, his the way he writes women is just like there's not it's kind of a dead end road it's like you're either the dead the dead wife or you're the her character was just i don't know she was a weak character to me i don't know her character was a tool her character was she was a prop she was a thing that drove the plot yeah but you know rebecca hall did a much better yeah I, i feel like her character was more believable even though she was a weaker character too but we'll we'll talk about her later we can talk about casting real quick. So we have Christian Bale as one of the leads as Alfred Borden, the professor, and Fallon. We'll talk about the twist in a minute, everyone. But apparently Bale had to contact Nolan about the script, not the other way around. No, Bale <laughs> found out about the movie read and uh, wanted to do the part and called up Nolan and was like, why did you not consider me for this? <laughs> <laughs> He's letting that Bruce Wayne cocky uh, attitude get to him. <laughs> He's like, "Hey, man, I just made you a shit ton of money and sweat, and was in a fucking costume that made me sweat for twelve hours a day. How about showing me a little courtesy, goddammit? Hey, get me in that fucking movie. Uh, I can't do the well, whatever. Insert Wales accent. You know what I mean? But... I don't know. Does he still have an accent? I don't even know anymore. I was watching a behind the scenes thing for this movie and he just didn't have an accent. And I'm like, do you just talk? 
I read for Is that an accent now. That I read for Batman Begins when I was reading trivia that he goes. Apparently, he's known bit in the past. He's been known to go in and out of accents for like red carpet premieres and talk shows because he doesn't. He truly doesn't want to like break character. So when he was premiering for Batman, he wanted to. He spoke with an American accent because he. It's something about not wanting to confuse audiences in case they didn't know he had an accent. And I'm just thinking like, yo, that's just, that's taking dedication. Some Daniel Day-Lewis type shit. It's crazy. But can we talk about the accents for one minute here? I know this is like really off topic, but can we talk about the accents here for a minute? I don't All understand right. it. Why do the men have American accents and the women have British accents? Christian Bales has a Wales accent the whole movie. No, he doesn't. Yeah, he does. Hugh Jackman, who is a lord, by the way, and should have a British accent. And Christian, Scarlett Johansson, who is American, is doing a British accent. Yeah. And she, I just don't understand why the women speak British. It and, makes them sound elegant and from the past. But Christian Bale's, um, Christian Bale speaks with a, a Wales accent in the movie. <laughs> but Hugh Jackman is American. Hugh Jackman is full all-on American. But let's get into Hugh Jackman, I guess. <laughs> Good segue. Uh, so Hugh Jackman, Robert Angers, the great Dayton, and Lord Codlow. Uh, Nolan said he wanted Jackman because he had a showman type quality. Interesting that he would be the greatest showman to some. Oh, ho, 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 ho. I see ho, what you did there. He does a lot of greatest showman stuff in this movie, holding out his hands to an audience, bowing in front of an audience, bowing in front of a glowing light. Let me tell you some shade that Nolan threw at Hugh Jackman's career. He said, has the great depths as an actor that hasn't really been explored. People haven't had the chance to really see what he could do as an actor. And this is a character that would let him do it. Talking about what? How fucking arrogant is that? But what is he talking about? Nolan is talking about Jackman. In just in general? He's saying Jackman, uh, Jackman is a, He's basically saying Jackman is a great actor. Uh-huh. And other movies have not explored how good of an actor he is, but this I, movie is going to make him a great actor. It, that's what he's saying about Jackman in the Prestige? Yeah. Oh, I mean that's what he's saying in wow. this quote. The quote is literally has the great depth as an actor that hasn't really been explored. People haven't had a chance to really see what he can do as an actor. And as this is a character that would let him do it. All right, uh, let's keep going. There's Michael Caine as John Cutter. I, Always. He's going full Michael Caine in this movie. He's just playing himself. Uh, Rebecca Hall as Sarah Borden. Mm-hmm. Pretty good. Mm-hmm. She's a... Uh, I, always, I always feel bad for her. Did you hear what happened with Iron Man 3? No. She was supposed to be the villain of Iron Man 3. Oh, really? Yeah, and then they ended up changing it to Guy Pierce last minute really i didn't know that that would have been interesting i feel like i guess they thought people wouldn't have bought it we had scarlett johansson as olivia we got david bowie as nikola tesla my man this was nolan's only choice for the for the part of tesla like wrote it for him yeah which is i'd say really interesting because i didn't i mean i've seen bowie in a couple movies but like you see all the labyrinth you see it, you get the whole package. You get the whole picture in Labyrinth. But it's just interesting because I don't. I mean, he's got good acting chops. This movie proves it. You know, he's a, he's got he's got the talent. But it's just interesting that 
he had Bowie he in it mind. Before this. No, I understand that. He did the man who fell to earth, I think, and it was, and he had done Twin Peaks and stuff. But um, it's just it's interesting to have keep him in mind. Like I don't know, I just to get inside the mind of someone who's writing and thinking Bowie, and it works. You know, it's just yeah. cool. You got Andy Serkis as Mr. Alley. So good. Which, wow, surprise, surprise. I don't know how he just even the the tiniest roles he makes himself memorable. Just, I don't know how he does it. He's well, so it's easy when uh, you take his cat. He just feeds off that energy. When I you take liter- his cat. Literally feeding off the energy. Literally. <laughs> they literally fed the energy off of his cat. To I make love him- that he was just like, you owe me a new fucking cat if something happens. Like, yeah, he's he- calling out Tesla. <laughs> about a cat. <laughs> and he had no reaction. That's his baby. That's uh, that's his pet. Yeah, it's his pet. Absolutely. There's no explanation needed. That's his. That's his goddamn family. So uh, this movie is based off of a book with the same title, and apparently Nolan told uh, all the actors not to read the book before doing the movie. That's kind of him. Yes, but apparently Christian Bale read the book. Are you surprised? <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> Oh, man. Go figure. The man who wants to be the master of all the tricks has to know. And I noticed in the opening credits, this is a Touchstone movie. Does Which that mean strange. it's part? It's Disney. This is a Disney movie. Touchstone was bought by Disney? Touchstone is Disney. Since when? Since always. That's how Nightmare Before Christmas came out, through That's Touchstone. Right. That's true. So like we meant, do you want to get into uh, the movie? Is this, is this, hang on, I have, I have a very, I just have a side, just, you can add this, you can cut it. Yeah. Is this why 10 Things I Hate About You and Who Framed Roger Rabbit are on Disney Plus? Yeah. Okay, because Pretty Woman is also a touchstone film, as is Apocalypto, and I don't think either of those <laughs> are on Disney Plus, although I will say I rally that they should be. Absolutely. What's more kid-friendly than Apocalypto? Than Mel Gibson <laughs> literally screaming in your fucking face. So, the script, just real quick, just something like pretty crazy. They finished the final draft, of, like the shooting script, three days before filming. No way. I mean, I guess they wanted to keep people in the dark on purpose. I guess they didn't want to reveal everything. I, I don't know. I just think that they were trying to perfect it until the end. Well, whatever they were doing, I mean, it, it worked. Yeah, it was a relatively quick shoot. It took place from January 16th, 2006 to April 9th, 2006. Okay, wow. And apparently when writing the script, Jonathan Nolan wanted, because it's uh, Jonathan Nolan and Christopher Nolan worked on this together. Mm-hmm. And apparently Jonathan Nolan wanted to take out the diary bits. And Christopher uh, Nolan said, no, the diaries have to stay in the movie. They, I completely agree with that in hindsight. I completely agree too. This mo- the diaries are everything. The di- absolutely. And, we'll, and I, I, I'm excited to get into it. But the, it's the link between the past and the present. But not even that. It's the, it's the link between the two characters. It's the getting inside their heads. It's, it's literally Inception without diving. Like you're literally diving into one person's psyche. But then you find out you're not even diving into their true thoughts. It's really about an incredible back and forth and on depths and levels that Like you said, it's about the past, the present, and ultimately the future when you get to the end of the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
But my question is, it took Hugh Jackman two years to get through the diary? Is that how long the time was? They say later on in the movie when Hugh Jackman gets back to London that it's been two years. So I imagine if he sailed from London, from Colorado, that's probably a long journey. But he'd been away for two years. I don't know how long it took him to get through the diary, but it took Christian Bale a lot shorter of a time to get through his diary. Well, he also had more time on his hands. What was, what was Hugh Jackman doing when he was in Colorado? He was just sitting at the hotel. I guess you think if he was that obsessed, he would have finished that shit in like two If he days. was that obsessed, he would have read the fucking book on the boat ride over to America. Yeah, he would have just, he wouldn't have slept on it if he was that obsessed with this man. Because you're supposed to believe he's that obsessed. You, you know? have, uh, what's it called? You have, what, a sick, a four to a four week journey? by boat from London to New York and then a two week train ride to Colorado. You're telling I mean, me you couldn't have read all that book in that I time. Mean, come on. You're what? Five Harry Potter books in you've been reading for what a week. I mean, come on now. It's, I'm, no, it's, a, it's a valid point. You bring up that only people like us would ever fair beg to question. I, I didn't think even most, question it until just now. To be honest, I've never questioned. I literally, we could have been talking about this movie for 30 more years and I just would never, <laughs> I literally would just never think about it because the narrative does a good enough job at making me believe like, Hey, they're going back and forth. It is what it is. No, when you look at the does fact what it does best and plays with time. God damn it. Time is like the whole point of all of this. I think time is the takeaway of all of his movies. Yeah. It's Game all about that. the time that they lost with their families and with each other. I was just thinking about it. I'll give Hugh Jackman a little bit of credit cause he had to decipher the key, like the code to read the journal. That was a big part at the end that but he said. Even still, book should have been done by the train ride to Colorado. Even if he didn't understand it, if he was as obsessed as we were to believe he was, no excuses. Two, three days tops. Maybe uh, I'll give him a week. I was being generous with like eight weeks here. Like Man weeks changes of- his entire life to get some kind of vengeance against this other man. This is next level shit here. He's, he's, he's dedicated in ways that the most people are not. The that both of them, I the depths it. that they will go to try and get one over on the other one. So I guess we should just start with Michael Caine's opening monologue. Every magic trick consists of three parts or acts. The first part is called the pledge. The magician shows you something ordinary, a deck of cards, a bird, or a man. He shows you this object. Perhaps he asks you to inspect it. To see that it is indeed real. Yeah, not all Not. But of course, it probably isn't. The second act is called the turn. The magician takes the ordinary something and makes it do something extraordinary. Now, you're looking for the secret, but you won't find it. Because of course, you're not really looking. You don't really want to know. You want to be fooled. But you wouldn't clap yet. Because making something disappear isn't enough. You have to bring it back. That's why every magic trick has a third act. The hardest part. The part we call the prestige. If I were to make a collection of films that were metaphorical in terms of like representing storytelling or a metaphor for filmmaking in this sense. Like 
this is probably probably one of the clearest examples I, I I can I can recall ever in film. Like it's a movie about a magic trick, and yet like watching the movie itself is a magic trick. You know? Yeah, you see everything, and you choose not to see it. You are and you end up surprised at the end. I think that uh, we should just talk openly about the twit, what the prestige is at the end. That way Mm -hmm. we can go through the movie in a more free manner. If that will help you, that will help me. Surprise, surprise. Christian Bale plays two characters. Mm -hmm. He is Borden and he is Fallon. He, AKA Christian Bale and the funny looking caretaker. That no one seemed to notice look like him? Are you kidding me? Which I will say, I don't recall like noticing that. I'm not, I, I mean, at least when this came out, I wasn't that good at observing. But like I watching this, you, you can't unsee it. I just, all I saw every time I was like, this is just Christian Bale. Every and time I watch this movie, I feel more and more like an idiot. To be fair, they really do a good job at hiding the character's face enough that you really wouldn't question it. He's cut. He's cut to more than you think he is. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Especially and, like um, either mediums, not even mediums. Either like they're a little further close-ups. back. Yeah, I mean, you don't get the close up of him until the end, where they stay on him enough, where the audience may be able to pick up. On no, there are a couple shots prior. I made notes of them where you like see his face for at least two to five seconds, and you're like, you should have. When you think back on it, you're just like, I should have picked up on this. But that's part of this movie's genius is the whole notion that they're putting the reveal right in front of your face from the get-go. So the first uh, scene, like I said, was uh, Michael Caine giving his monologue while Hugh Jackman fakes his own death. And then we cut to a courthouse where Michael Caine is testifying against Christian Bale's character. Well, one of them. But the main importance of this trial scene is that it's setting up that the big thing in the world of magic is the transporting man. That's the MacGuffin, essentially, because they're both competing to perfect this trick, Mm -hmm. even though one of them is going about it one way and another person is going about it in a very different way. Right. Well, it's... It's it's the, the like there's the, two people are going at it one way and one person's going at it a very different way, <laughs> right? But they, it's the point of the film where the beef has been unable to be logically grasped for any particular reason. Like there are bitter, there's bitterness and there's whatever envy, but it's really not until this trick that it's like okay, now here's a tangible thing that both men are just clamoring to achieve. You know what I mean? It's just because the rivalry between before that point was just personal. It was like it was the loss of a wife or it was the loss of this. And it was kind of just getting back at one another. It was very it was almost petty. Whereas this trick is like almost like, well, now how can I really overpower this person? Because now there's a tangible thing that the audience can grasp. Well, we'll get to it later. But there's a very poignant scene in the movie uh, when Hugh Jackman literally says, I don't care about my wife. I want to know how he does the trick. Like, this isn't what it was. This mm-hmm. is about me trying to outdo him at any cost. It's the, mo- the, com- the motivation completely changes. And you can f- you, there are certain beats in the script where you know that it changes. So. so then we go to the jailhouse where we see Roger Reese or the sheriff of Nottingham from Robin Hood Men in Tights. 
That's really funny because he looked familiar to me, but I didn't know where from. And now I, that makes sense. Go on. Uh, and uh, th- his character is willing to pay. He shows up at the jailhouse and he's willing to pay Christian Bale $5,000 for all of his tricks. Right. Specifically the transporting man. Mm-hmm. Therefore reinforcing just how important this trick is. Mm-hmm. We find out later that Reese is under the employment of Hugh Jackman. Right, 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 right. And this is all just a fucking scheme. <laughs> it's, it's also great, like, when we're talking about time, how this is technically all flash forward. Yeah. The, whole, the, the entire movie is basically flashbacks. Then we go to Colorado. Jackman is on a train. I said very Shining vibes, just because both hotels are in Colorado. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although maybe I would go to this place in the 1890s because what does Hugh Jackman find? That everywhere has electricity. Yeah. Which is astounding. How, does, how is this possible? Well, I'll tell you how it's possible. A Mr. Tesla lives in this town. The old Nikola Tesla. Nikola Who, Tesla. We find out borrows to be able, he, he makes a deal that he gives the town electricity. He can borrow their generators. <laughs> he... The gen- it's so he he gives them electricity during the day so he can work on his experiments at night with the same generators that are powering those lights. It's just he gets to play. Let's go to the flashback here because this is like important stuff here. So we see a magic show and Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale are in the audience. And of course, it's a whole setup so that they mm-hmm. can be pulled on stage. Right, and they're tying up uh, Angier, Hugh Jackman's wife, so mm-hmm. that she could be dunked in a tank. Very kinky, I, um, very kinky stuff. I made a note with this scene it was a notable ticking clock. They're building the anticipation, the suspense. They think they do it twice before the you know, bad shit goes down with her. But they show Michael Caine with the ticking clock. Yeah, and I feel like set up for Dunkirk. Absolutely, but they, I feel like they have even clocks shot like even the 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 observation of a clock in a shot i think he's done that in almost every movie so far because he loves the man loves time i mean ever since following when they mentioned that like the clock was a bit and i'm like all right like this man has clearly had this obsession with time from the beginning i've been like when i notice clocks especially like when it's silent you see a ticking clock it's just way more noticeable especially almost a call forward to something like dunkirk kane starts his stopwatch and grabs an axe. They dunk her. She gets out. It's all great. They go backstage. And this backstage was actually like a 360 set. Oh, really? Yeah, Fister would literally carry the camera and would film around the whole room. And it only had, it was like one center light. That's cool. I like that a lot. Borden is basically saying, hey, this guy we're working for, he's old fashioned. Like, his tricks are outdated and all this shit. Cutter tells them to go to, uh, tells oh, to Hugh fi- Jackman and Bale to, to go to the, the Chinaman show. Yeah. And it, the Big Lebowski line just kept flooding my brain. Chinaman is not the preferred nomenclature, dude. Asian American, <laughs> if you please. <laughs> um, absolutely. But at the Chinaman show, I'm sorry, that's the only name I have for him. It is a very big setup. A very big reveal is given to you right on the onset. Bale and Jackman are watching this old man leave his show 
this after the show, they're watching him get into his carriage. And Bale is telling Jackman, this whole thing, this is the act. He's not an old man. He's a yeah. young man who plays an old man. Yeah, who said, which, which character says that? Hugh Jackman? No, Bale says that. Borden says think? that. Which, which is, is him telling you, if you want to perform like a great illusion, you have to be willing to go out in public as someone else. You have to be prepared to be someone else to do something that extraordinary. I was going to say, there's so much writing on the wall with this movie, and that's just another moment, just to hear Bale of all characters make that observation should only give more clues as the fact that he's thinking like that, that he's probably a little shady himself. You know what I mean? In terms of questioning someone else's identity and their disguise. You know what I mean? Like, that's exactly what he's doing the entire time. You know? Exactly. So, he's literally, he's telling you flat out, this is what I'm doing. Uh, top interesting fact is that Chung Ling Su apparently was a stage character created by William Ellsworth Robinson, a white man who disguised himself as a Chinese man to cash in on audiences' enthusiasm for the exotic. Robinson lived as Chung, never breaking character in public. He died in March 1918 when a bullet catch trick went wrong. Oh, my, my God, I've been shot were both his last words and the first English he had spoken on stage in 19 years. So I guess... That is nuts. So I guess there's like some, because it's interesting because I, I guess that's some actual real life inspiration for the story here. Um, but it's very interesting because I don't know how much actual history there is embedded into the characters in this movie. Like, I don't know if the guy they went to go see was a real person. There, there's real stuff and there's fake stuff thrown in here. Like, right. when we get to Tesla, things are both real and fake. Sure. And that's... You know? The blur, that blurred line is very interesting to me. One of the comparisons I made earlier in the podcast is Amadeus. And it, it's very much Absolutely. in that vein where it's, it's not a literal interpretation of the past. And it's about a rivalry. You're, exactly. You're taking elements that happened. You're taking an event that happened and you're creating a fictional story based around that, those actual events that happened, you know? at Jackman's apartment. He's making out with his wife. The only reason I'm bringing this up is because his wife suggests he take on the great the great Dayton as his magician name. Where did they get that name from? Because that was Robert Ang Ang Angier? Angier, yeah. So I don't know where they get that but name from. But his name isn't technically Angier either. We could talk about that now. Hugh Jackman in this scene when he's with his wife tells you again that he is from British nobility, that his parents kicked him out of their house because they were ashamed of him. And a big reveal later is that he is Lord Caldwald. Yeah, that's strange. So you, he tells you up front that he is not who he says he is either. They're both telling you up front, we're that's, not who we say we are. Which is, again, that's part of the point of the movie. So we cut to the jail cell, and Borden is reading... Uh, is reading uh, Angier's diary. Uh, in the diary, Angier writes, what does Borden know about self-sacrifice? And it's just, in rewatching, that hit me harder because Christian Bale kind of laughs in that moment. Mm -hmm. And the first time you watch it, you don't understand why this guy's laughing. Like, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. What has he sacrificed, really? 
mm-hmm. and then you find out he sacrificed half his life. Yeah. Literally, he shares his life with someone else. Yeah. And you're te- and he's reading a line like, he what does he know? Does, about you know, that? what are you sacrificing? It's because a, yeah, it's just confirmation that he's pulling off his his illusion. His, yeah, exactly. The fact that he's got the other guy so convinced that he's not actually doing anything. Yeah, yeah it's, it's brilliant. Good. It's really good. I'm telling you, man, it's it's super meta. It's really something else. <laughs> Keep uh, going. We go to a show that Borden is doing, assisting and so on, and he meets Sarah, his future wife, and he brings Sarah home real quick, hitting on her. He, he doesn't waste any time. Let's <laughs> just say he doesn't waste any time at all um (laughs) he uh he takes her back to her apartment and is like hey can i stay for some tea and she's like no we better not and then she opens her door and inside the apartment is the other borden i was gonna say and it's like oh (laughs) shit oh i just told you i know for tea but here you are so hey i guess let's have some tea (laughs) <laughs> it's just pretty funny. Yeah, that literally could have gone south. I mean, I would love to see another version of this where also he appears and he's like, ah, and like she screams and she's like, what did I just tell you? Get out of here. Stop playing tricks on me. And yeah, him very bleep. easily could have turned into insomnia. If she screamed, he could have beat her <laughs> over the head with that kettle. Or a frying pan, you know, if you want to go for comedy. But I will say, I don't know if it was the scene right before here, because I think it's when they first get together, him and Sarah, with the disappearing bird trick where... Yeah, uh, that's before that. And he, um, the child, he says, the child says, uh, when he's, the child's crying, he thinks the bird is dead. And he says, yep. where's his brother? And Christian Bale gives such a look. And he's like, and he, just, he doesn't say anything. He just looks at the kid and then he looks at, at Sarah and he says, um, he's a sharp lad, your son. She says, he's not my son, he's my, he's my nephew. Yeah, and, he, call, and he sees it immediately. That is I the just, movie in a nutshell. I didn't want to... For time's sake, I was trying to run through that, but I I love that bit. It was brilliant because essentially he's again setting up, like what's gonna happen in the end. Where's yeah, crying? Where's his brother? And I'm like, man, like the the agony you're gonna. Not only that, you're killing one of the brothers so the other can live, Ah, and and fly free. We'll get there. This movie kind of reminds me of uh, Vertigo. You have you seen Vertigo? Yeah, yeah. Well, if you remember, like the entire movie of Vertigo is told to you in the beginning of the movie. In the first five minutes when you see that police chase, yeah, everything is set up. The beats yeah. are literally laid out. And then everything else, you just watch it happen in real time. And Exactly. And that's kind of what's going on here. Once you know the secrets, it's way easier to pick up on moments like that and be invested in them in a completely different way. So then we go to underneath the stage where... Cutter is showing the judge the the transporting man machine. And Cutter says this very poignant line, it was built by a wizard, a man who could actually do what magicians pretend to do. I love it. And it's just very ominous. It's so yeah, it's a very eerie a lot of the stuff in the a dialogue, especially about the things with the science, and we'll get there, but it's um it's eerie. And it's very, uh, it's hard to explain. It's just a it's, great setup for uh, Tesla in general. Yeah. We haven't met this man, but we know at this point that uh, 
Angier went to Colorado to be with Tesla. Mm-hmm. We hear Cutter talking about this, the fact that he is a wizard, and you just have this myth around him already being stitched together. It's so good. So we cut to the magic show, and it's the same shtick. Angier and Borden are called up from the audience, only this time, Borden ties a different knot. Mm. Or does he? And Sarah drowns. Sorry, yeah. Judy drowns. It's this exact moment. I mean, you really it's really at the funeral, but it's the, it's, this is the event. This is the one, this is the thing that splits them. And then we cut to Sarah's apartment where she is with Borden. Borden says to her, I love you. And says, Sarah today. says, no, you don't mean it today. Not today. Mm-hmm. Because Sarah has this inane gift where she can tell when which Borden is which, but she doesn't it. realize it. She says some days it's true, some days it's not. Some days it's true, some days it's not. But she says in the beginning of this movie that it makes the days that it's true all the more special. Uh, but it makes it all the more poignant that even though she can't explain it, she can feel that he's different. And this is the first real literal indication that he's, she literally feels like he's a different person. Yeah, she knows without knowing. Yeah, it's cool. Her like her nephew are kind of clairvoyant. (laughs) Then the professor is doing a magic show. His big trick is the bullet, the catching a bullet, which he explains is safe. I I don't know for what reason, but Borden always starts with the rings. Like that seems to be his go-to starter trick, which everyone seems to be booing every single time. It's, It's fascinating that it's almost in like a bar setting. It's very like you get that feeling in that scene, the one you're talking about, that we're about to talk about, mm-hmm. that it's almost like it's very dingy. It's very like back alley kind of like, um, like it could be in a low, I don't even, I don't even think it's a theater. It looks like it's just. No, it looked like a bar. Yeah. And it, which makes it cool that like he's got all these drunks and, and then he pulls out the gun. He's like, is this what you were all waiting for? Um, he literally points it at some audience members. It's just very, it's very edgy for his character in that time. Like that's not, it's not something at all that Robert would do, that Hugh Jackman would do, you know? Yeah. And well, it is something he would do. This is chalked up to movie knowledge, but this is a continuous thing throughout the movies. Both these men have this gift of being called up on stage. I was going to say. Every single time. How, how, how uh, coincidental that they each are called up. In disguise, and that happens twice. One happens with one, happens with the other, that they're called up in disguise to sabotage the other person's act. It happens more than once. Like, it happens more than twice, I think. I think literally every single time these men have shows, they are called up on each other's stages. They must have good goatees, man. They must know someone in the mustache business. Some good fake beards. Well, we know Christian Bale has uh, some good fake beards because he's fouling. he He goes through quite a few of those. I think of all of his movies, this is the one that both has great replay value, but also loses the, for lack of a better word, magic in terms of actually deconstructing it. Because the whole thing is about the trick and yet to feel like you can still be overwhelmed by what it's doing years later, you know what I mean? More than a decade later is incredibly, and it's an incredibly impressive trick, you know? Angier in a very convincing goatee, very upset because he thinks Borden shot his wife. Uh, sorry, because he thinks Borden tied Had a different knot. Not on purpose. Yeah. Asks Borden 
once more. Which night did you die born? I don't know. Because yeah. that's a constant thing. How could he not know? What well, I was going to say, I don't know if when, when the funeral is for her, but that's the thing. That was beforehand. He says that's before that line. this trick. Yeah. And how could he, he not know? He says, how, he says it over and over again. He says, you don't know. He says, you don't know. And he says, how could he not know? Well, after this scene, when ba- when Borden loses his fingers, it cuts to Colorado, where Anger is reading the diary, where Christian, where Borden writes, he doesn't know what knot he tied. He just said there was no way. And I in the known. bedroom of Colorado, he's like, "How could he not know?" Yeah, because and even, then even, yeah, you yeah, cut yeah. to Christian, you cut to Borden in prison, who who writes in his diary, he must know, like he must know what knot he tied. And I told him the truth, that I have fought with myself over that night. One half of me swearing blind that I tied a simple slipknot. The other half convinced that I tied the length for double. I could never know for sure. How can he not know? How can he not know? He must know what he did. He must. Like you're literally cutting between a flashback, a diary, a diary, and present day. It's yeah, it's cuts the time really well. Crazy. I made an. It, inse- I've said very Inception because you're yeah. literally cutting between trains of thoughts and through to- different timelines. But the narrative is weaved together incredibly well. That they're taking a singular thought as to not knowing who tied the knot, and you're taking this idea of obsession. And you're weaving it throughout that you don't even really realize you're time jumping. Like you, it doesn't feel jarring. It doesn't feel like you're questioning yourself because they're just using that structure, that storytelling structure incredibly effectively. Then we cut to Sarah's apartment where she's cleaning Chris, uh, Borden's fingers. And she, again, we see, we are told flat out this is a different person because she's saying your fingers are as bad as the day that uh, the accident first happened. Yeah. She's telling you again, like, you you just lost two more fingers. Like, this yeah. is a fresh cut. What the yeah, hell just yeah. happened? Yeah, it's crazy. It's, it's Especially once you know it all. It's just... And it's that because one of them miss, is missing two fingers, the other one had to cut off two fingers. <laughs> they had to keep up the illusion. Well, it's a flashback at the end, but that's, that's my favorite reveal of the, of the brothers when you find out they're living the lives. I'm just like, dude, that's the moment that you're like, the dedication, like the emotional dedication, and we'll, we'll, get, we'll ex- explore it at the end, but the just even the physical dedication, like, hey, I lost two fingers, you gotta lose two fingers. Like, that's just, it's crazy, man. Your mind immediately goes back to that quote in the diary, what has he ever sacrificed? And yeah. you're just like, you understand why. Absolutely. He's laughing in that scene. Absolutely. Not only has he had to give up half his life, but then he had to give up two of his fingers. <laughs> just, just, to, just to keep up an act. Cutter and Angier decide to work together and put on a new show mm-hmm. and hire Scarlett Johansson's Olivia as the mm-hmm. assistant. And they're going to do a new bird trick, which doesn't seem that different from the old bird trick, except sure. this time it has a taxi driver machine. Cutter, uh, Angier originally doesn't want to do the trick because he doesn't want to kill the bird and cutter yells at him and says you have to be willing to get your hands dirty for this yeah yeah, yeah. and a constant theme coming back throughout this movie is whether or not angier can become dark enough can he do what is necessary 
to get his revenge. They even use that dialogue. Getting, you're finally getting willing to get your hands dirty. That that dialogue, exact dialogue, comes out through multiple times in the movie. During the show, for some reason, <laughs> Borden is chosen in uh, somehow he shows the Great Detente shows audience <laughs> and goes up on stage and sabotages the trick, thereby breaking some poor woman's hands. This poor woman's hand, Jesus. Dude. It didn't look like those hands were broken. It looked like they were slashed open. <laughs> this, between the sound effects and her screaming, you could just feel it. So then we go to back to Colorado where Mr. Alley brings uh, Angier to a field of snow that are, is covered in light bulbs. And it's just one of the most beautiful shots that I think Nolan has ever done. You took the word... Uh, I, 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 you took, just took the words out of my mouth. I mean, I, I know that... It's, it's probably better that we clash in certain things, give people diversity. But I was, I literally had the notes. I was like, maybe one of the best visual sequences in all of Nolan's career. But, and it's like, it made me wish the sequence was longer. At the same time, like, you don't need filler where it's unneeded. The entire idea of the mystery behind Tesla in, in general in this movie is effective. Because, like, I have that line written where he says, um, where are the wires? And Andy Circus says exactly, and then he it just cuts up the field of all the bulbs being lit up, and it's kind of like the entire the entire ominous mystery of not just Tesla but of what's going on in this movie is suddenly it's suddenly coming to fruition. It's suddenly coming to light where you're like, oh, this movie's a little bigger than I realized. A small dissection of two men to a grand scope of like mysterious elements that we can't really explain and that was that scene with the light bulbs in this it's really it starts to open up your perspective a lot more any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic right um that's what we're dealing with here especially in this scene this is technology but in the 1890s the fact that you have light bulbs going off like that and you're just impressed that a entire town has light bulbs seeing something like that is literal magic and once again it's just building the mystery of tesla like i I said this movie is just you're shrouded yes it's about these two men it's rivalry but it's a shroud like there's a shroud that tesla casts over this entire movie it's so good especially because they talk about him enough that it's not it's not quite unlike it's a little different it's not quite unlike how they hide um robin williams character in insomnia like you get the build-up and then he shows up and you're Mm. like oh like there's this build-up like this is different because he's a he's not a villain but he's this character who's like he's hyped up a little bit and then by the time they reveal him it's kind of like oh here's this presence that we've you know built towards i was uh kind of like you i was going with a villain it's kind of like the emperor from star wars yeah You know, for two, if you watch them in the order that they came out, you're spending two movies hearing about the Emperor. You're seeing the might of his empire. Absolutely. And then you finally see him, and he's standing with electricity powers. Oh. (laughs) I didn't even make that analogy. But then we cut back to uh, London in the 1890s, and there's actually a Tesla exhibit that... Borden and Angiers both went to and upon leaving Angiers decides to follow Borden and I wrote in my notes following (laughs) 2.0 
But um, in this scene, the most poignant thing that happens is Angier finds out that Borden has a wife and that he has a child, which mm-hmm. is something that he feels Borden robbed him of. Uh-huh. He looks I, at Borden I, with a wife and kid and goes, that should be mine. You I took wrote, my wife from me. I wrote the, the quote because I thought this was a, a good, another turning point for the movie in terms of like, it starts with the death of his wife, but then this is really what it becomes about. He says, um, I saw a happiness that should have been mine, but I was wrong. Uh, talking about Alfred, he says, his mind is divided. Um, he makes yeah. a clear distinction that like, oh, this is the life I wanted, but there's something different here going well, on. Well, he here. writes essentially that it's a divided mind. One day he's all, he's very happy that he's a family man. And then the next day he's writing about how it's holding him back. Which makes the whole ending even more poignant that the truth is what it is because you realize you're looking at two men. But then it's um, also another one of those questions and I, I'm sorry I keep bringing this stuff up, but it's one of those things of like, you couldn't have splurged on two diaries, guys? <laughs> Each one kept one. Yeah, but it's one diary. He's only reading one diary, which means right. they alternated pages. Like, I guess they both would have had to have been keeping the diary, right? That's what I'm saying. On that's al- strange. Like, on alternating days, did they like take turns writing? Uh, I did make a note that the monologuing during this scene, specifically with the journaling, looking at the life, it reminded mm-hmm. me of, of Memento. Well, again, you're reliving memories or perceived memories, just mm-hmm. like Memento. We finally meet him. David Bowie enters the scene. And what an entrance he gets. I wrote, it's just a hell of an entrance. It's, <laughs> I, it's definitely one of the best movie entrances that I have ever seen. It's incredible. And it's almost an hour in. It's just like... Uh, it's just like Insomnia. It's just like Insomnia. You get this big character who comes in an hour in and you're like, oh, now the movie's about to get really good. But it's also, let's take note how poignant it is that Tesla is in the movie. I mean, obviously he needs, uh, Angier needs the machine from Tesla, but let's not forget that Tesla was in a giant feud himself mm-hmm. throughout his entire career with Edison. That's why the dialogues they have are, are very poignant. It's that idea of the dynamic, it's the back and forth, it's the understanding of the, of the competitiveness and the obsessiveness, and it's just, it drives this entire movie. That's why, t- exactly, exactly like you said, that's why Tesla's monologues or him questioning Angier's is so poignant because he's talking from experience. Do you want to talk a little bit about some, uh, like you think that this feud between <laughs> Angier and uh, Borden was bad? Can I tell you some crazy shit about Edison and Tesla? Tell me some facts. So let's talk about what started their beef. So <laughs> Tesla immigrated from uh, Croatia in 1884 with about four cents in his pocket. Tesla ended up getting a job with Edison. Now, Edison, at this point, he didn't invent electricity like so many people note. In fact, he just bought the patent from the people who did. And he used DC direct current, uh, direct current generators. Uh, Ironic, a generators. DC character. Yeah, just like that. A DC character showing up with DC current. Hmm. Now, the thing Coincidence, about- I think not. A coincidence? I think not. Well, (laughs) now the DC generators, here's the thing about them. They're crap. (laughs) They can only give 
we're about 0.75 miles. 0.75 gigawatts. Right, right, right. Yeah, but it's a it's a one line worth of electricity, so it doesn't flux and it will die out toward the end if you're at the end of the line. But the generators <laughs> also exploded. Edison told Tesla that if you are able to fix all of the DC generators that I have in New York City, I will give you a $50,000 bonus. To which Tesla said, challenge accepted. This is a true story? You're not making things up? No. Wow. He went out, he did it. He came back to Edison and Edison said, I don't think you uh, get American humor guy. Like I wasn't being serious. You're not getting a $50,000 bonus. You crazy. And of course, Tesla says, fuck you guy. I'm out of here. Man, what an asshole. So Tesla then creates AC uh, alternating current electricity, which travels further and has fluctuating electric waves. And he forms a company with this guy, George Westinghouse, who invented uh, air brakes on trains. That's how he got his money. The shit is on immediately because Edison didn't take Tesla seriously when he had no investor in the bank but now he has an investor. So what is, and the current war starts, AC versus DC, which is how the band got their name actually. So Edison tries to smear Tesla and his form of electricity by creating an electric chair out of it. This is how the electric chair came to be. He wanted to prove how unsafe Tesla's form of energy was. Jesus Christ. Then he, to make things worse, he would literally pay kids in his neighborhood 25 cents to round up dogs. And what did he do with these dogs? He made a performance out of them. He tied them up to AC uh, generators and electrocuted them to death. What was the, to prove what? To, Just prove to prove that Tesla's electricity was it's dangerous. Dude, it makes its way up from a dog to a zebra all the way to an elephant. He kills an <laughs> elephant, Topsy the elephant, it all ended when Tesla got the World's Fair Chicago uh, 1893 contract. And for the first time in the world, tens of thousands of light bulbs were lit in one consolidated city of Chicago. Wow. Blowing everyone's mind and pissing off Edison to the point where he made a deal with JP Morgan to crush Tesla. Somehow, mysteriously, Tesla's lab went up in flames in 1895. That actually happened? Yes. Oh, uh, okay. It mysteriously went up in flames in 1895, and Tesla lost his blueprints for everything. So now let's take everything that I said into consideration and talk about what David Bowie's Tesla is telling Angier about obsession and competition and what it can lead to. It will lead to animals. Dead elephants. Innocent animals being electrocuted. I want to make a note. First comes out and they shake hands. He says to hand him a light bulb. And oh, when, yeah. when Angier says, what's conducting the electricity? He says, our bodies quite capable of conducting and producing energy. And I said, this is another metaphor on human connection. Well, yes, while they're eating lunch, he says, have you considered the cost of such a machine? Mr. Angier, have you considered the cost of such a machine? Price is not an object. Perhaps not, but have you considered the cost? I'm not sure I follow. 
go home. Forget this thing. I can recognize an obsession. No good will come of it. And yep. I thought that that would like almost gave me chills. I'm like, yo, this is like, this is it. The man, this is the writing. I said, this is the writing on the wall. It's predicting a doomed fate. And this is, it, in a sense, this whole movie is an old school style cautionary tale that like we grew up with as children. Like it almost feels like something out of like an old, an old story, like an old book. And like that's this dialogue when, it, when he tells him to like go home, I'm like, all right, I know where this is going. Not just because I've seen it, but because I know that storytelling has told me for generations that this is not going to end well. And uh, Tesla consistently throughout the movie is telling Angier, don't use this. At the end, when he builds the machine, he tells Angier, you want my advice? Drop it in the, drop it in the sea. Drop it to the too. bottom of the deepest ocean. Such a thing will only bring you misery. Let's go back in time here to the professor's show where he does it. He performs the transporting man for the first time. It's not much of a show as Cutter and Angier and Olivia would talk about very soon because it's just a man walking in and out of a closet. I love it. Very simple. But this trick blows Angier's mind. Mm -hmm. And this is truly where the obsession starts. There's the dialogue between him and Cutter, between Angier and Cutter, when he says, um, it actually might have been Scarlett Johansson, uh, Olivia. I don't know. It, Anger is talking to one of them and he says, I need to know how he does it. And they say, why? He says, so I can do it better. And I yeah. made a note. I said, this is the, that's the moment that the obsession changes. Cutter tells Angier, I know how he does it. It's a double. It's yeah. a bloody double. <laughs> and Angier is insisting, no, it, it's not a double. Yeah. I can't be a double. And again, this is Nolan telling us. He's telling us right He's telling us flat out, it is a double. Yeah. And we don't want to accept it because we think there is something more nefarious behind it. Olivia says it couldn't have been a double because he's missing the same two fingers. Mm-hmm. Not realizing that these that Borden and Fallon are fucking lunatics and would literally <laughs> chop off their own fingers to perform a magic trick. So... Angier and Cutter come up with their own trick for the transporting man with a double. They find and a drunk Hugh Jackman in the bar. They find literally drunk Hugh Jackman at the bar. <laughs> but this doesn't go well. Borden immediately, he knows that it's a double, decides this guy, I'm, I'm going to play with this guy a little bit, and gets the double to hold the, all the power over Angier and Cutter. Yeah, I, I wrote it's a poignant moment the first time he falls beneath the stage. Um, the standing ovation, the way it's shot, they have the bright lights coming through the through the wood and he's doing the, the bow. He's doing mm-hmm. the standing ovation, but he's beneath the stage. But then they very quickly take this wonderful moment where it's like, um, I, I guess it's when Borden meets the double at the bar and he's like, he talks to him about um, giving too much power to the performer, you know? giving too much power to the double. But to, but to your point uh, about the under the stage thing, Olivia sent to go and spy on Borden mm-hmm. at Angier's behest. She does it objectively. Like she doesn't want to do it because she loves Angier, supposedly. Mm. And uh, on Olivia and Borden's first encounter, Borden tells Olivia, well, he asks her, does he enjoy taking his bows under the stage? 
He knows yeah, immediately how absolutely. he's doing this trick. Yeah, yeah. He sees right through it. But like we were saying, Olivia was un was sent to Borden at Angier's behest, hmm. and now Olivia gives Angier Borden's diary. We find mm-hmm. out how Angier got the diary. It's in this moment when Olivia's saying, you have to give me the diary back. She's playing him, of course, we find out later, but she's saying, you have to give me the diary back. I have to put it away. He'll know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'll, He'll know. know that I took it. And this is the moment that I was talking about earlier when Angier snaps and says, I don't care about my wife. I care about his secret. It's that's, a turning point. That's the turning point right there. It's yeah, no longer about... His uh, vengeance of his wife or whatever. It's, it's, it's just become about being the better man, you know, which is... Well, I should note at this point, Borden pulled his hilarious prank on Angier because at uh, Angier's, the great detente, Angier's show, uh, Borden moves the mat in which Angier falls on during the transporting man trick so and ties up... <laughs> Uh, Angier's double. Yeah, and it's quite. That's quite a bit. It is and quite a bit. He says, "Go easy on him." He tries so hard. Everyone's applauding. He directs them to the other theater and directs them towards his theater. Oh man, it's plays a, it's, a, it's a cut. It's a deep move, you know. Well, that's why Angier is so pissed. That's why he's so. That that's really why he snaps. That's why he's willing to go to Colorado for two years. This man has goaded him to the point where he feels it necessary to upend his entire life. And when Angier is fighting with Olivia about it, he says uh, he lives the act, talking about him. He thinks he's got him figured out, and he's talking about Borden. He says he lives the act. And that's a note of dialogue that they made. Because, again, it's just they're telling you. They're just, they're, they're just yep. telling you. I mean – I know there are a lot of his theory or metaphor or whatever, but like there's a, there's so many literal answers to the questions that are being told so early on. But there is a rub to this diary. To read it, you need a code word. Yeah. So what do Cutter and Angier do to try and get this? They get their hands dirty. They get their hands dirty. They snatch up Fallon and bury him alive. It's great. It's a great move. It's dark. Very ballsy. It's very, I love when they fall through the stairs and they trap him. And as he's hammering, the gunshot goes off and he'll save you some, save me some room to, to make you a breathing hole or whatever it is. Yeah. Oh, I just so love good. the moment where uh, Borden gives Angier the password and Borden asks uh, Angier, where, where is Fallon? Is he still alive? And Angier hands him a shovel and says, "Depends how fast you can dig." I love it. It's so. It's this is that's that's a moment where because now the back and forth is getting now it's getting personal. It's getting really hostile now, um, which cuts to when Alfred and Sarah are fighting at dinner, and she says, "Why are you uh, Why are you acting like this?" It's more of her knowing that he is the way he is and being you know acting like two different people. And he says a line. He says, "I almost lost something precious to me." And she's like, well, what was it? And he kind of like pauses. And we know at this, we should know at this moment how important it was for him to almost lose Fallon, you know, to almost just this, this was a, you realize it's a much bigger moment than you would think. It's not just his caretaker. It's not just his friend. You know what I mean? You realize it's a little something more. 
But in the end, Borden is still the one who can laugh because the paper, the password that he hands to uh, Angier, he tells him is both the key and the trick to the transported man. Mm -hmm. And the paper reads Tesla. Yeah. And immediately Angier is saying, all right, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to Colorado. You coming with me, Cutter? Cutter yeah. is literally getting a bullet wound stitched up. And he's like, what are you fucking crazy? Yeah. He literally says obsession is a young man's game. But then we cut to this, to the restaurant, which was just a very awkward dinner scene with, uh, Fallon. The one I was just talking about? Yep. The one you're oh, talking about. Oh, the four about. of them are there. With and the four then of them. Where one of them starts off. Sarah is sitting at the table, very pissed off already. You can see her seething. She's losing her mind. Her husband doesn't tell her the truth. The tricks are more important to him than the marriage, and she can sense something is off. One day she loves, one day she loves him, and one day she, he doesn't. It, mm-hmm. Something is off. I don't know if that's so, the line I have when it after it cuts. This is the diary reveal. This is the reveal that he's writing it. Oh, sorry. Borden's writing it to Angier. This is the big reveal when he says, um, Tesla's the key to my diary, not my trick. He gets the reveal. Borden, in his diary, tells Angier that it was all just a ploy to get him out of the country and send him away for two years. Pretty good trolling, I gotta say. That's pretty good for the (laughs) 1890s. That's some good trolling. So Angier storms into Tesla's lab, furious. He's like, what the fuck have you been doing with my time and money you've been wasting everything i'm like i literally gave up everything to come more or less yeah tesla is like no 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 sir everything's fine and they test the machine on mr ali's cat i love the quote he says when he's confused as to why nothing happened with the cat and tesla says these things never quite work as they're used to that's the beauty of science and I just, I love that even in that moment, he knows that his machine doesn't seem like it's working. Angier storms out. He notices that there is another cat surrounded by, I don't know what, 30, ton, 40 top hats. Top hat. That's a great moment. There's that whole panning down of the cats fighting and they pan down to just all these hats, man. That's, that's a good moment. Because that's when you realize, oh, this shit actually does work. But then we go back to London where, again, we like I've, was saying Sarah is losing her fucking mind. And nice, the nice, I wrote that the nice Alfred is slowly losing his wife. <laughs> yeah, but you can see the frustration that he's feeling too. Right, and that's, it's, it's sad when you see him, like the scene where he gives her the key to the house. And it's like, you get the idea that that's actually him. Um, that's actually Borden. Or when they're, where they're fighting at dinner, it's more Fallon. And vice versa. And it's kind of just, these are the moments where you can actually see. It's almost like a bipolar or a schizophrenic type of scenario. Where he, just, he wants it, you know? He He's fighting it. for his wife. Yeah. But when he says he loves her, she says, uh, which makes it so much harder when you don't. Yeah. Which is a complete reversal from the beginning of the movie, like I said, where she said... Uh, you don't love me, but that's okay. It makes the days you do feel all the more special. Oh. It's completely reversed now. She's yeah. grown tired of the of these games. So then we go back to Tesla's lab, which is burned that's, to the ground. Burned to the ground. <laughs> and I wrote second burnt down mansion in a row. Oh yeah, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> Angiers gets the machine from Tesla. 
where he gives him the advice, destroy it. Yep, drop it to the uh, the bottom of the deepest ocean. Such a thing will only bring you misery. Now comes the next big reveal because Borden, reading the diary, gets to the end and sees that it was all just a trick because he, Angiers writes in his diary, "You, yes, you, running away in a prison for my murder." So I wrote it. I wrote at this point, tricks and illusions are just the beef outside of the magic shows. <laughs> The dedication into to- uh, toying with one another and um, creating a coup in terms of just like faking one another out in just the diary alone. That's why I, we were saying it, it, the idea of it being important or not. Like I, this, this scene is more proof. These last two diary reveals are proof that you can't really act these scenes because it's the whole idea of, cr- of each one crawling inside the mind of the other. You know what I mean? It's beyond tricking each other. And it's beyond outdoing one another in, in performances. It's, it's literally really about, writing hundreds of pages in code just... Just to torture the just other to person. Just to torture the other person. So then we cut back. Sarah, again, distraught, and she kills herself. Very, very hard out by her. In- incredibly dramatic. Incredibly dramatic. I don't know. So, uh, Angier finds Cutter and brings him to a theater with his fancy new machine and says, I want to put on one more show. Yeah. They do the callback to the card underneath the beer glass. Yep. And they call in all their favors from, I don't know who that guy was uh, like in terms of this movie, but he is also in Frasier. That is Gil from Frasier. (laughs) Nolan likes his Frasier people. We love our Frasier alumni. I will say at this point when Angier has called Cutter you know, to meet him to see his the prep for his final trick. Um, he shows up in a fancy limp and new cane, not unlike uh, Christian Bale in the beginning of The Dark Knight Rises. So we cut to a restaurant where Olivia and Borden are having lunch. And this is clearly the Borden who never really loved Sarah. Uh, yes. Because he's telling Olivia, Sarah meant nothing to me. Like, I love you. And Olivia is like, you're a disgusting human being. Your wife just killed herself. (laughs) And you're coming on to me right now. Yeah. It's really like an interesting twist on being a mistress. Right. Because usually it's a matter of like, you, the mistress wants you to leave your wife but here it's like your wife committed suicide and she's upset because you are not upset right it's um and it's showing more of the idea of that sacrifice and playing two characters playing two people it's just like you almost have to play the part of two people there's no way she calls borden out on it yeah she says you're just as cold as angier is like you two are meant for each other so then Angier puts on his magic show. Like, I know. I, I love this dialogue. He says, he says, the world is on the brink of new and terrifying possibilities. But Borden is yelling at Fallon. Why can't you outthink him? Like, what is going on? How is he doing this? That's when he loses his shit. I wrote that. He wrote that. I wrote that dialogue. He says, why can't you outthink him? That's the first time you really see him become angry in the way that Angier has been angry. It's really, you see the vulnerability of both men in that moment, you're like, okay, now they're on equal playing fields, kind of. So, of mm. course, Borden goes to see Angier's show and is, once again, pulled up on stage, somehow, magically. And we get 
and it's the beginning all over again. Goes down to the bottom of the stage and watches uh, Angier drown. The build-up to the scene is incredible, I wrote. They show these back and forth between the box being transported between horse and buggy and just the foggy, you know, lighting. It's very dark lit and just, it builds Blind and builds men and builds. working for Angier. Oh, it's, it's almost like when we were talking about Nolan doing horror. You mentioned, so- um, sorry to cut you off. No, it's all good. You mentioned like how this reminded you kind of like a Greek uh, myth. Yeah. I'm just thinking the blind people, like that's very Greek. Everything mythology. about it, especially going underground, like it could almost be like uh, like an underworld kind of like it's very eerie and the moody atmosphere. You just see a, a creepy blind man sitting in a chair. There's really not a lot of explanation. Like it really, this feels like an old story. It feels like something you would have been told when you were a child to kind of frighten you a little bit, but to again be a cautionary tale. And you really feel it with this build up to the drowning scene, and you feel it again at the end of the movie. The blind man turns and it's just very creepy. And then all of a sudden he drops and there's no, the music cuts and there's almost no sound. It kind of just happens very quick. And it's this incredibly dramatic moment. It's the first time you really feel an emotional connection between he's yelling, he says, where's the key? Where's the bloody key? Where you get the sense that at least from Borden's perspective, at this point of the story, he doesn't want to watch his rival die. You know what I mean? He literally is just, he's completely vulnerable in that moment. In a dark night sense, you know, they live, like the Joker, he needs him to live. It's his competition. Without him, what is he going to do? Yeah, it's just in that moment, you see him as a human. Where like, Plus, he also whole, is in the wrong place, wrong time. Oh, well, absolutely. But this whole idea of the tables turning in the sense of like, like I was saying with Rock, Hugh Jackman being presented as the protagonist and Christian Bale being presented as the antagonist. This is almost the moment where you feel like the tables have turned in terms of expectation because, you know, Borden's the one who's saying, where's the bloody key? He's trying to help him out. Whereas you almost get the sense that Angier probably wouldn't, maybe wouldn't have done the same thing if it was the other way around. It's such a quick moment. I literally wrote this just like, it's completely unexpected. I even knew this was coming and it still felt surprising because of how fast it happens. It literally cuts to his funeral and they cut to the, 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 the corpse. You know what I mean? It's Note here too, that, that tank is exactly how Hugh Jackman's Angier's wife died. Yeah. So there's just a lot of history with the tank. So then we go to the jail. Like we said, Borden is in jail. He's awaiting to be. They say hanged. that's the moment where they say you were, he's guilty to be hanged by the neck. And who comes to visit him in the prison? But his good old friend, Lord Caldwell, Cutlow, mm-hmm. which is Hugh Jackman. It's multiple layers again, like so much of this is. It's a matter of how did you do this trick? And I'm I'm about to die because they think I killed you. Like, you you can stop this. You don't have to let me die. This is a great moment. I wrote that when he when Robert says, "All I wanted to do is prove I was the better magician, but you wouldn't leave me alone." Um, and in this dialogue, Alfred says, um. No one cares about the man in the box. They call back to this line. He says, the one who disappears. Um, and that's when you realize that um, Angier's going to be taking the daughter away. 
and he makes a dialogue about how like, oh, you took something away from me. I'm going to take something away from you. And you get the idea that this is almost an exchange. Again, this is what makes it feel almost like a classic, like a mythological story. It's like this man loses his wife in his eyes to the one man. So he's going to take that man's daughter. He's choosing to a life for a life. Um, and even though it's not justified because what he's doing is wrong, it's that idea of just uh, cutting deep into what the other person cherishes and values most. But what he doesn't know is that there's a third life in Fallon. It's crazy. But uh, Cutter goes to uh, goes to Lord Cudlow's mansion to try and stop him from buying the uh, transported man machine, only to find out that Lord Cudlow is Angier, and Cutter is even shocked and disgusted by what he's doing. Yeah. He's saying, how can you do this? You're ruining this little girl's life. It's a and real it's a real Heisenberg moment, you know, where the good, the, the good guy just becomes the bad guy. There's a bit where Borden, I don't know if you're here yet in your notes, but where Borden says to Fallon, um, he's, before they're about to be separated for good, and he says, you're right, I should have uh, left him in his damn tricks. I'm sorry, you uh, go and live for the both of us. And he tosses the ball, which is kind of giving early indication, finally, that, hey, if you didn't get it by now, this is the trick. This is the moment. This is the reveal. And if you still don't get it, then there's the very, very end where they literally... I don't want to call it an exposition dump, but then they did the final dialogue, which is the final uh, reveal. So ultimately, Borden is walked to uh, be hanged. His last words, abracadabra. Is that what he says? Very interesting. And what a trick he pulls, because he resurrects. Because now his yeah. brother can live a full life. Cutter and Angier bury the transporting man machine. Cutter leaves the theater and gives one of those like nods to uh, some guy passing in the street, like you know, one of those Return of the Jedi nods, like bump, bump, bump. <laughs> oh, I know the one very well. To the theater walks Borden Number Two, and he shoots Angier right in the fucking stomach. I will say, up until this, what point, a long death scene. The suspense. Oh yeah, they really milk it. It's very sad. But the but the suspense to this scene with the noose and the tank reveal is also like I was saying with the suspense before. Oh yeah, where is that? It's yeah. even more so. Just like how he comes downstairs, he's and he's looking at the tank, and you don't know what it is, but you see the look on his face. Um, it's almost like just pure horror. It's kind of just it's a, the way again underground. They build to it, just the terror of it. Um, it's not just terror in Angier's eyes, though. It's also a matter of he is looking at the double that he never would have conceived lived. Because what was he told constantly by Cutter? It's a double. Mm -hmm. He has a double. Yeah. And he and refused to believe it because right. he said it's too simple. Right, and and that's what that where the obsession got the best of them. So just, the look in Angier's eye is not just one of like, holy shit, I'm gonna die, but it's recognition that he was bested by a simple trick. What absolutely. drove him to what drove him to madness was something so simple. And I I wrote that that the real version of each man technically dies while the double of 
of both of them actually ends up living. What I said about this plan being simple, there's actually a quote, simple maybe, but not easy. Right. It is not simple for two people to share one life. I wrote that exact quote. I love the Bale's exchange when he says, we took turns. He says it so simply. He's like, we took turns. He's like, some nights I was whatever. Some nights I was fouling, some nights I was bored. And, and it's just kind of like, he's like, says it with almost such easy glee. But then um, we also get the reveal of what was going on with Anger and his machine and how every time he was transported, a double would be created. I love that so dialogue as well. He had to literally drown his double every night. So it was costly to him too. He was literally killing pieces of himself every night just to get revenge on this man. Anyway, I love that he says sacrifice is the price of a good trick. Um, and they reveal that he's killing the doubles, whether it be with the gun or the, that eventually the drowning. He says, it took courage not knowing if I'd be the man in the box or in the prestige. And I'm like, I just suddenly had this idea. I, I don't know. This is a bit of a deeper conversation, I guess. But it's like the, the idea of your, will your consciousness reappear in, in, in the other side of the room with an audience applauding? Or will you fall to your death in a, in a tank? Um, but then it's even more poignant when both men discuss what this feud was even about. It's remarkable because at the end of his life, he realizes they weren't even fighting the same war. And he says, if you can fool them, only for, if only for a second. And um, he basically talks about how that's what it is. In his final words, he says, he says to get the look on their faces. You know, he just, it's really only about the appeal. It's about, and again, that comes back to even the filmmaking metaphor. It's just this whole idea of just like, it's really about your final product. It's about what you're doing at the end. Um, and then he dies. It's just, it's an incredibly poetic, um, you know, take on on something like this Borden burns the theater with Angier's dead body with, and the machine we're hearing the opening monologue again about the three stages of a trick yeah he says um the final dialogue he says now you're looking for the secret but you won't find it because you're not really looking you don't want to know you want to be fooled and the last shot is the the tanks of uh Hugh Jackman what do you think about this movie? Tell me. I actually think that what I like most about this in hindsight is that I think this is probably one of Nolan's darkest movies. He's telling a great story about, like we've said, like metaphors on filmmaking and storytelling and performance. And like, this is the kind of movie that you and I could spend, however, we could spend infinite amount of time talking about the comparison of this movie to the idea of of illusion and performance and the idea of film but like the it's just it's an it's an endless loop um what it does is incredible but i really love how it's just bleak like it doesn't have this ending wrapped up in a bow where it's like okay here's the story and it's clean cut and it's over and you know a good guy gets what he wants bad guy gets it in the end whatever it's like it's a lot more complex than that and it's complex and almost than more than anything we've seen in his work so far because you're seeing a turning of the tables like you said in insomnia but it just goes it gets more personal and it becomes more obsessive and it's just the bleak nature of like how much sacrifice is someone willing to make and how much are they willing to go how far are they willing to go in order to sabotage another person it's just pretty far 
it's just it's cutting humanity to its cruelest and i just really i i love tearing out the insides of uh human emotion i just think it's just what that's what drives it that's what you know i i i love about the angst between these these characters it's very dark it's a lot more dark than i remember in that sense especially in the way that it just leaves you on that final note so kane in an interview about this movie said it's very hitchcocky in the way he is doing things he being nolan very suspenseful and i didn't think about this movie in a hitchcockian way when i was watching it but when i heard michael kane say it everything kind of snapped into place the way that it's about very much like uh, insomnia it reminded me of strangers on a train with notorious and rebecca mixed in it's just you're on the edge of your seat in a movie filled with just twists i don't think necessarily it's that it's my favorite nolan movie but i nor do i think it's really his best movie but i think that it is his deepest movie the issues and themes that are tackled in this movie are more complex than i think anything he has tackled this gets to the deepest, darkest depths of a person in terms of just betrayal and um, bruise and facade and all for a means of proving a point that ultimately doesn't matter to anyone but yourself. My other two thoughts are, one, next time, Nolan, if you're going to make a movie in one place, just make sure everyone has the same accent. Yeah, yeah. And I, I get- guess considering they're all supposed to be from the same place, right? Yeah, that's just, that's all I'm saying. You know, if they're going to be in Britain, have make them have British accents. Like Andy Serkis, I get having an American accent. He's from Colorado. But like Hugh Still Jackman is not. He can do whatever the hell he wants. Hugh Jackman is supposed to be like a British lord. And you're telling me he doesn't have a British accent? Final, final thought is just that I miss David Bowie. That man was a wizard and I miss him. I miss him a lot. All right, uh, you want to give your pick of the week? I was going to say American Werewolf in London. Oh, that's a good one. There we go. That'll be my, my pick. It's, uh, you know, the idea of being trapped with the monster within yourself. Also probably one of the best uh, stop-motion transformation sequences I've ever seen in a movie. But Not many and- movies uh, scare me. But upon my first viewing of that movie, I could not get through the whole thing. I was like... 13 or 14 at the time and i had to turn it off not because of the werewolf but because of his friend the one that keeps reanimating and he's becoming more and more like a corpse it's a very strange way of doing a ghost friend it's weird it's a psychological trip man and it's um if you watch it as an adult there's a lot of good dark comedy in the movie and there's like even the exchange between the two friends it's it's um a little comedic um but it's just a strange movie. It's got that British humor to it, but it's also very dark. And then it becomes very violent and very graphic very quick. Uh, my pick of the week, I'm going to go with Amadeus. I mentioned it several times throughout the podcast. So good. And that movie, so good. If you want to watch two men in a different period piece with an obsessive rivalry, you can't get better than Amadeus. That At movie, least you're consistent. I watch this movie, I think, once a year. Just it's And it's good. like a, it's a long movie, but I make time for it every year because it is just so well done. The, That's, again, uh, it's the descent into madness just to take down a rival. R.I.P. Milos Forman. Oh, I was going to say Milos Forman, man. Pour one out. Pour one out. 
it's um that's an incredible movie from beginning to finish the way it's shot the way it's acted the music of course i mean production everything. design everything about it the music it's an, incredible, it's an incredible movie and it's very in tune for what we just talked about all righty i think that's where we're going to end it tonight this has been whose filmography is it anyway as always you can find me at mr Filmart on instagram and there's a work on a uh, Instagram <laughs> for this page. I promise we're working it's on true. it. It's happening. It's true. One of these days, maybe even by the time this podcast is posted, maybe I'll have Who to knows? cut this out. Who knows? We'll we're open to anything. All right. We're going to sign out here.